Father, as we read and hear these words from Paul, I pray that you would speak to us and that we would hear and heed your words in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are the second week of our series called Rooted Disciples, following John Stott's book, The Radical Disciple. I begin with an apology. Some of you got confused because last week I actually started with the last chapter, not the first chapter. So we've gone back in time now and we're back on chapter one. So uh, if you are reading through the book, today is, is inspired by chapter one. The series, I'm just going to remind you, the series is called Rooted for two reasons. The first reason is that my prayer is through this that we would put down deeper roots and grow stronger in Jesus. And the second is that we might each grow more as disciples all the way from the toppest branches to our deepest roots. It's curious the way we read the Bible in church, isn't it? When we read a novel, I don't know about you, but when I read a novel, I don't open it at some random page and then decide to start reading 20 lines down. That's not how you read a novel, is it? Well, I hope it's not. Is that how you read a novel? Anyone? No? Uh, some people I know do read the last page. My grandma reads the end before she reads the, the beginning. Because, she, yeah, she, get, she, she wants to know that she's going to enjoy it and that there's no nasty ending to spoil the enjoyment. One or two of you know what that's like. This is actually one of the reasons why I prefer physical Bibles, because, for example, today our reading comes from Romans. You can see immediately how far through the Bible our reading is from this morning. It's quite a long way through. But also, when you're looking at it on a page, you can see much more easily what comes before and what comes after the passage. And this is particularly important on a day like today, when the passage begins with one of those key words like, but, or therefore. Today we have therefore, verse 1 of chapter 12. It's probably one of the biggest, strongest, most important therefores in the whole Bible. You see, Paul has spent 11 chapters explaining various things, teaching. He's been teaching about the seriousness of sin, the way that God stays faithful even when we are not, the way God forgives us and saves us and gives us life through Jesus, even though we don't deserve it. That it is all a gift for those who have faith, who put their trust in God. He taught us how God adopts us into a new family and gives us the Holy Spirit. And that we must not domesticate God, but treat him as he is, as the sovereign Lord, worthy of glory and praise. Those verses just before at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. Praise God, Paul says. Therefore... In view of God's mercy, in the light of who God is and all he has done, therefore, this is what it means to be God's people. Paul moves from theology to practice, from God's gift to God's call, from gospel truth to gospel living. And he does this in almost all of his letters. He begins with what God has done and then moves on to how disciples must live. Why that way round? It's very important And it is because all we do as disciples is a response to what God has already done in Jesus. We don't need to earn God's love, his life, or his gifts. In fact, we can't because the price is too great. We don't need to impress God or pass an exam. We don't need to jump through a hoop or over a bar or under it if you like to limbo. All God has done for us is a gift given to those who put their trust in him. I don't know if you know the phrase, putting the cart before the horse. 
Have you heard that one? Well, all God has done in Jesus, that's the horse. And all we do in response, that's the cart. And you know where the cart goes. The cart goes behind the horse, doesn't it? Makes no sense to put the cart before the horse. That would be ridiculous. But so often, we think and act as though we need to prove ourselves to God. To earn his love. To show we deserve it. But that's putting the cart before the horse. Because the life of a disciple is lived in that therefore. A response in the light of God's mercy, Paul says. A woman was in a terrible accident. This is a joke, by the way. A a woman was in a terrible accident. So you know when to laugh. You know you need to laugh at the end of it, okay? The woman was in a terrible accident where her face was severely burned. I haven't run this one past Jess, actually. The doctor told her husband that they couldn't graft any skin from her body. So the husband offered to donate some of his, as a loving husband might. And the only place that was suitable was his, well, it was his bottom. The wife agreed on one condition, that they tell no one where the skin had come from. After the surgery, everyone was astounded by the beauty and the youthfulness of her skin. She was even more beautiful than before. All her friends, all her relatives, they couldn't stop talking about how beautiful she was now. And one day, alone with her husband, she was overcome with emotion at his sacrifice for her. My dear, she said, I want to thank you for everything you did for me. There is no way I could ever repay you. Darling, he replied, think nothing of it. I get all the thanks I need every time I see your mother kiss your cheek. Not sure I've done a bottom joke in church before, but I apologize if you're offended by that. <laughs> last, week, last week, we looked at how being a disciple of Jesus is costly. Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And I suspect that Paul had those very words in mind when he wrote verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Like in the, in the Old Testament, they, they had literal animal sacrifices. And uh, the sacrifices, they had to be without blemish. Often they were the firstborn. They were supposed to be the best, uh, the most perfect. They were to be holy set aside for a specific purpose, for for serving God. And God's people were called to be holy as well, different, set aside for the specific purpose of serving God. And I think holy is probably the most important word to describe how God's people should live. Probably goes with the word love, holy love. It means different. It does mean perfect. It means set apart. So in Matthew 6, verse 8, when Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Do not be like them, neither the pagans nor the religious hypocrites. In Leviticus 18, verse 3, God says to Moses, You must not do as they do, because God's people are called to be holy, to be different to the rest of the world. And this is the sacrifice side of holiness, not living as the world does identifying our sin, 
Not so we can feel bad about ourselves, but so we can stop. It's traditionally called uh, mortification. John Stott loves that word. If you ever read any of his comments, he always loves the word mortification. It's very simple. It means working out what we do that's wrong and putting it to death. Stop doing it. It's not easy and it's costly. That's the negative, uh, the sacrifice side of holiness. And the Bible contains a number of things that it tells us not to do, but far more often it gives us a picture of the way God calls us to be, the things he tells us to do, how we can live a holy life, pleasing to God, Paul describes it. He wants us to pray, not so people see, but in secret, so we can be honest with God, so we can learn to listen to him in the quiet. So we can get to know him. That was Jesus' point when in Matthew 6 he says, Do not be like them. The religious people with a big show of prayers, the pagans babbling away. God's people are to be different. God wants us to read the scriptures, to, to hear him speak through them. God's chosen these words to speak to us powerfully. To learn his ways. To hear his thoughts. To be encouraged. To be challenged. To be inspired. God wants us to receive his spirit so we can be renewed. So we can grow in faith and use the gifts. There's a list of gifts in the second half of that reading. That the spirit brings to the church. What's important in the list is not the gifts themselves but the way they're used. To serve. To bless. God wants us to become more like Jesus. The perfect example of what it means to be a human being. But as well as being holy and pleasing to God, there's another little word. Actually, in the Greek, the word sacrifice comes first. Paul says, offer your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing. That first one, living. The Christian life is a journey. It's something we do one step after another, one day after another. It's not something uh, we do all at once. Sorry. Sometimes we go off in the right direction. Sometimes we head off in the wrong direction. I often, when I get lost on walks, it's usually because I'm in a wood where you can't see any landmarks. And often in woods, you get animal trails. So you're walking along the footpath and it sort of goes off a bit. And you can't quite decide which one to go, and one of them looks bigger than the other. It turns out it's a fox trail or something, and you walk along it, and you end up, and there's just a wall of tree in front of you, and you have to pick your way back. That often happens in life as well. It's so easy to to just wander off, and then suddenly we find we're completely lost. It is a journey, but we need to keep focusing on Jesus so that we don't wander off like that. Being a disciple of Jesus is something we live. It's not something we do in a church building, or on Zoom, but everywhere and every when. That is true and proper worship. It's quite a hard word to to, uh, translate that word there. It kind of means logical, rational, reasonable, spiritual, appropriate. It's possibly a a way to translate it. It's, It's appropriate for us to worship with our whole lives. Why? Because it's all come from God in the first place. He doesn't just give us a couple of hours on a Sunday. He gives us our whole life. 
So what would be more appropriate than to live that life in worship? Worship is more than going to a midweek prayer meeting. Though they're great things to go to. More than going to a home group. They're great things to go to as well. It is all that, but it's also everything else. It involves our bodies, our minds, our spirits, our hearts, our homes, our workplaces, our leisure, our joys, our sorrows, our pains, our hopes, our fears, our struggles. The lot! True and proper worship is a whole life lived wholly for God. True and proper worship is a whole life lived wholly for God. A woman who lived next door to her, this is a joke as well, by the way. I'm just going to start telling you so you know to laugh. A woman who lived next door to a preacher was puzzled. He had a bit of a personality change. At home, he was shy, quiet, retiring. But in church, he was a fiery preacher, rousing the people with God's word. It was as if he were two different people. One day, she asked him about this dramatic transformation that came over him when he preached. He said, ah, he said, that's my alter ego. You know what I said about low bars? <laughs> John Wimber, who started the Vineyard Church Movement, said, and it's one of my favorite phrases, you'll hear it a lot, you've probably heard it a lot already, come as you are, don't stay as you are. Come as you are, don't stay as you are. It's another way of summarizing this therefore in Romans Chapter 12, verse 1. Romans 1 to 11 says, Because God's grace and mercy and life are a gift, we can come as we are, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what we struggle with, we can come to God as we are. But Paul doesn't end in chapter 11. He carries on in chapter 12. Therefore, he says, Therefore, because God has done all this, in view of God's mercy, verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world or this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Come as you are, don't stay as you are. In his teaching, Jesus regularly contrasted the present age with the age to come. The present age he described as stubborn and rebellious and evil. And the age to come is God's kingdom, which is breaking into the present from the future. And that means we have a choice. Which age do we want to live in? Humans are great at copying. It's how we learn to speak, isn't it? As, as toddlers and babies, we copy what people say to us. That's why we have things like regional accents, because we copy. It's how we learn new skills. I learned to cook from watching things like MasterChef on the telly. <laughs> Never had any lessons. Watch what they do and give it a go. It's how we learn habits, good or bad. The present age is oh so easy to copy. It's everywhere. It's all around us. It's on our TV screens. It's on the radio. It's in our books. It's so easy to do what Paul says we mustn't do. It's so easy to conform to the pattern of this world. But that is not the way for disciples of Jesus. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, when the Bible talks about the mind or the heart or the soul, 
it usually means the same thing. That sort of that inner consciousness, that the, the me that's sort of inside our heads, in our hearts. It, it's our personality, it's our, our emotions, our desires. It's all, all of that stuff. And that needs to be renewed. All of it. How? It's great isn't it? when Paul says stuff like, be transformed. Okay, how? <laughs> how do we do that? Well, actually, most of that is done by the Holy Spirit at work within us. So number one, how, is ask God to do that. Do you pray for God to renew you from the inside out? And if not, why not? That's step one. Uh, Step two, as we saw earlier, learning to pray. Why? Prayer is not just about asking God for the things that are on our hearts. Prayer is about focusing ourselves back on God. Restoring that focus within ourselves back on God at the center. It's about reminding ourselves that the world does not revolve around Ben. It's about lifting up our eyes to see where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord. That is what prayer is. And it helps us to listen to what God is telling us. Then there's reading scripture. Scripture, God has chosen these words to speak to us in a powerful way. We learn through scripture what God has said, what God has done, what, how he thinks. The psalmist says in Psalm 25, show me your ways, Lord, teach me your paths. How can we do that without reading what God has told us? about himself, about the world, and about us. Trying to live a Christian life without these things, without scripture, without prayer, without the Holy Spirit. It's like trying to cook without an oven, without a hob, without any knives, without a fridge, and without any ingredients. You're going to get hungry. (laughs) Is it any wonder that we're hungry in our spiritual lives? Is it any wonder when we're not feeding ourselves with the word of God. I wonder how you read scripture, if you read scripture. Now, I'm going to need to stop there a little bit because Paul then starts to move on to what it looks like to live as a disciple. And actually, Bobby's going to preach on a Christ-like life next week, so I don't want to steal her thunder or her sermon. So instead, what I'm going to do, I'm going to bring in some of the things that John Stott says in this chapter about living a different life. He has there's this quote that I'd like to read from page, page 19 and 21. He says, We are neither to seek to preserve our holiness by escaping from the world, nor to sacrifice our holiness by conforming to the world. Here, then, is God's call to a radical discipleship, to a radical non-conformity to the surrounding culture. It is a call to engagement without compromise. That's the way John Stott describes it. And then he suggests four contemporary trends and things that challenge the church, that make life difficult for disciples, that are at risk and perhaps even do find their way into the church so that we don't even realize. And we need to be aware of them so we can resist them and live as Jesus did. The first one he highlights, he calls pluralism. They're all isms. The first one is pluralism. This is the teaching that every other ism 
is equally valid and right. It doesn't matter. There are many ways up the mountain. John Stott says we need to engage in this with great humility. Not a hint of superiority. But we must stand firm in the truth that Jesus is unique. That there is salvation in no one else. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The second ism is materialism. Uh, This is more than simply enjoying physical things. It is a preoccupation with them. Seeking after them first, desiring them more than we should. And we engage by showing a different way. Perhaps by living more simply. By being generous with what God has given us. Learning to be content with what we have. The third ism is ethical relativism. <laughs> uh, he does, yeah, well, he's a theologian. The, re- the book is very easy to read, but this, this particular bit he does like his isms. We see ethical relativism everywhere, and what it is, it's this it's what works for me. Honesty is abandoned in favor of what works. We see this in public life time and again particularly in the political life at the moment. We see so little truth, so little honesty, so much spinning. The highest good isn't a moral standard. It isn't something we've been told by the God who made us. The highest good is our desires in our hearts. So doing them is the best thing. This is what ethical relativism is. And yes, it has affected sexual ethics as well. This is how John Stott says disciples should engage in this area. I think it's really good. This is page 25. He says, we are not to be completely rigid in our ethical decision-making, but seek sensitively to apply biblical principles in each situation. Fundamental to Christian behavior is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus' Lord remains the basis of our life. So important. It's not about me. It's not about my heart. It's about Jesus. He is Lord. And he is Lord of me and you. The fourth ism is narcissism. This is the excessive love for the self. Focusing inwards. Exploring ourselves. Making our desires the ruling force of our life. We engage through a combination of self-affirmation. And self-denial, affirming the good things that come from God and redemption and forgiveness and denying the things that come from sin and fallenness. Now, there are more trends and challenges, of course, and I'm going to put these on the questions for the home groups for you to talk about in the week. But these four, John Stark highlights as particular issues for the church today. Pluralism, materialism, ethical relativism and narcissism. I wonder if you recognize any of those in your life. I'd be surprised if you didn't. And if you said you didn't, I probably wouldn't believe you. (laughs) So if you think they're not in your life, perhaps you need to ask God to help you see how they are in your life and how you can stop doing them, how you can live more like Jesus. 
Because these things, these attitudes, because they're in the culture all around us, they do affect us, and they affect our faith. They affect our journey of discipleship. So I wonder how we can engage differently, both more faithfully and more generously. So we've seen how living a different life has two sides. Giving up and turning away from the world's way, and then taking up and turning towards God's way. It isn't so we can earn God's love and favor, but as a response to God's mercy to us in Jesus. And it's hard work, but thankfully we don't have to do it alone. We have God's spirit, yes, but we also have one another. Did you see how Paul began that sentence? Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters... Christians are not called into a vacuum. We are not called to try and live our life by ourselves as Christians. We are called into a family. We are adopted into God's family. So I encourage you this week, don't try to struggle on with this stuff by yourself. Be honest and let's share our journey of discipleship with one another. Talk to a Christian person that you trust. You can talk to me. I'm not going to kick you out of my study if you come in and say, I'm really struggling with something. Because friends, I struggle with stuff. I do. I promise. I'm not going to share it from the front because that wouldn't be appropriate. We all struggle in different ways, but it's the same struggle because it's the struggle against sin. So let's stand with one another, shoulder to shoulder, and support each other on this journey of faith and discipleship. And let's help one another live a different life, reflecting God, reflecting Jesus. I'm going to close with some words from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 3, from verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, reflects the Lord's glory. And we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to remove the things that hinder, the things that stand in the way between us and you, that we might reflect your glory that we might become more like Jesus and live a different life, not the world's life, but your life. Help us, Father, to be holy and to support one another on that journey of discipleship. For in Jesus' name we pray.